The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll say it again, Shades, it is my joy to be back with you preaching this word. My, my sabbatical was actually the longest I have gone without preaching since I was 17 years old. But, but what's funny to me is, is that even though I wasn't delivering sermons during my sabbatical, I never stopped hearing them. Like I wasn't preaching, but I was constantly being preached to or preached at. And I'm not talking about I, I continued to hear sermons by visiting other churches or I continued to hear sermons through a podcast. No, no. I'm talking about the fact that I was inundated by sermons as I scrolled through social media. Like everybody and everyone is preaching. They were preaching to me their message, their gospel, their good news that supposedly leads to the good life. And this, lest you think I'm picking solely on social media, this preaching phenomenon is not unique to that one avenue. No, sermons are plastered on the cover of every magazine and all across our TV screens. It's, it's in every ad. It's coming out of the mouth of every politician, every blogger, celebrity, influencer, tweeter, YouTuber, and podcaster. Like, everybody's preaching. Everybody's got a gospel, a message about what's wrong with the world, with life, and the good news that they've discovered that will fix it. I remember uh, we were watching uh, a Braves game, and during a commercial break, a Chevy commercial came on. I wasn't paying it much attention. But as soon as it ended, Levi goes, Papa, do we drive a Chevy? No, son, we have Toyotas. Oh. Well, how many J.D. Power Awards has Toyota won? <laughs> Chevy is preaching a gospel. You're able to laugh because you've heard it. There's something wrong and inadequate with your car. And there is a good news, so a road to the good life. It's called Chevy. Now, I, I get it. That's a silly example, but one that becomes more viable all the time. My wife's van wouldn't start again this morning. Y'all remember that it wouldn't start on Easter? It's been fine for the entire summer. First Sunday back, won't crank. Somebody tell me spiritual warfare is not real, okay? Y'all can pray for her. It's going to be fun when I go home this afternoon. That's a silly example, but this principle applies. You are daily hearing Gospels. It, one of the things I'm hoping that this message will do is just kind of open our eyes to the fact that we are inundated with Gospels every day. Of Gospels of political policies, Gospels of finance, Gospels of wellness is a big one right now. Gospels of food, Gospels of possessions, Gospels of beauty, fame, sexuality, and identity. Like, like you name it and everybody's preaching. Here's what's wrong and here's what will make everything right. Chase, I, I desperately want you to, to be able to see that 
that you do not hear one sermon a week in this building. You hear thousands of sermons per week in this world. And all of them are trying to grip your heart with a gospel. What gospel is gripping you? It's a question I want us to explore for the rest of this morning. It's a question that I wrestled with throughout my entire sabbatical sitting in First and Second Corinthians. What gospel, Jonathan, is gripping you? What, what, what gospel are you preaching? What gospel is gripping shades? What, what gospel are you receiving as the treasure of your heart, as, as the pleasure of your life? Each of us, we, we've got to. We need to answer that question this morning. Because whatever gospel we are receiving is also the gospel that we ourselves are preaching. Everybody's preaching. Not just at us, but we're preaching at others. Everybody's preaching. That includes us. What gospel are you preaching? Whatever gospel you are receiving, that is the gospel that you will be preaching. What, what gospel do you preach? Through your social media. What gospel do you preach? What, what do you proclaim to all of your followers, your congregation, as the way and the path to the, the good life? I, um, I loved listening to talking with Joe Corey about uh, his sermon that he preached during my sabbatical. It was the first time he had preached a sermon. And one of the things he talked to Brad about, and Brad shared with me, was just about the weight. Like he, he's a professor, he's a teacher, he prepares lectures all the time, but, but he talked about there's something different in delivering the word of it. There's, there's just this weight. And I'm like, yeah, it's the weight of James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for do you not know that teachers will be judged with a stricter measure? That keeps me up on Saturday night. Does it cause us pause before we tweet? The average social media account speaks out to way more followers than the average pastor does on a Sunday morning. Everybody's preaching. What gospel are you receiving? What gospel are you preaching? Whatever gospel has gripped our heart, that's what we'll proclaim. What gospel is gripping you? That's our question for the rest of this morning. It's the question that I believe the Apostle Paul confronts the Corinthians with in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Actually, the entire book. But specifically, we're here in 2 Corinthians 4, and we're going to hone in on one verse this morning. We'll jump around to some other things, but we're, we're really just going to hone in and dig into 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. That's our focus. Look at it with me. Paul writes, For what we proclaim, that's him, all of his partners in the gospel, and really it's every Christian, what we proclaim as Christians. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Right here, Paul wants to be clear with the Corinthians about the gospel that he preaches. 
I want you to know. I want you to know what we proclaim, Corinth. Why? Why does he feel this need to bring clarity? Because he knows that the Corinthians are hearing much more than just his sermons. He, he knows that in Corinth, everybody's preaching. The the city of Corinth, it's in Greece, and it lies in one of the most important geographical locations in all the, in the entire country. It's on this small isthmus or, or land bridge between the mainland and the Peloponnesian Peninsula. So you've got these two massive bodies of land, and they're connected by a little bitty strip of land that's three miles wide at its narrowest. That's where Corinth sits. Ships, in order to avoid going around the Peloponnesian Peninsula, would sail right in there, and they would actually transport their ships and their cargo across that three miles of land to get to the other side because that was faster. So if you're going from Italy to Asia, Asia to Italy, you're going through Corinth. This, this made it one of the hottest trading centers around the Mediterranean Sea. Basically, it was a part of the ancient interstate system. Like I-65, A-20, both went through Corinth, just like they go through Birmingham. And because of that, just like Birmingham has become the biggest metropolitan city in Alabama, even bigger than our capital, Corinth was even bigger than Athens, which I'm sure you probably have heard about much more. Corinth was bigger, it was booming, it was wealthy, it was a cultural melting pot, it was decadent. You could get anything you wanted in Corinth. And that made Corinth a popular destination. People traveling, people of all professions. Everybody loves to go to Corinth. People of all professions, including these traveling orators or traveling speakers, teachers. This was an occupation in ancient Greece, really in the entirety of the ancient world. There were these people that would travel around preaching, teaching, hawking a philosophy of life, and people would pay them for that. They would pay them to come and to teach. They would pay them to, to, to listen to them, to embrace their philosophy, their, their way of life. They, they would do it because these were people who were good at public speaking. They were trained in the ancient art of rhetoric. They were interesting to listen to. Like People still do this. If you're interesting enough to listen to, you can make a living at it. That's why we have comedians. Like people that travel city to city and people pay them to listen to them. Because it's entertaining. They got a good turn of phrase. These teachers in Corinth, they had powerful presence. They had a powerful presence. They had a powerful persona. They could really captivate you with their wisdom. And so people paid these preachers to come and to teach them how to advance socially. E even just attaching yourself to one of these teachers could give you bragging rights in social circles. I follow this person whose book is a bestseller, New York Times, you know, 14 weeks straight. And someone retorts, oh yeah, well, I follow this person who's on their way to holding a powerful political office. Someone's like, yeah, well, I follow this guy and he was a successful business guru, which gives me social credibility even though I've never led a business of any kind. Like you get the idea of what's Going on, the Corinthians bragged about these teachers that they hired and they followed. Even having the money to hire one of these was a statement about your social standing. And the ultimate goal was not just to attach yourself to one of these teachers. The ultimate goal was for them to train you how to have a powerful presence. For them to train you how to appear wise like them. Then, 
You wouldn't just get social credibility for being attached to them. Then you could truly proclaim yourself as powerful and wise. You could truly proclaim your own glory. This was the Corinthian gospel. Gospel of power. Powerful presence. Powerful presence. A gospel of wisdom. I've got the key, the wisdom, the way to life. A gospel of yourself glorified. And Paul wanted to be clear with Corinth. That's not the Christian gospel. No. What we proclaim, and distinguish myself from these teachers, what we proclaim is not ourselves. Corinth, I know you're surrounded by people proclaiming themselves and tempting you to do the same. I know it looks powerful. I know it looks wise. I know it looks glorious. But Corinth, that's not the gospel. Shades, aren't aren't you glad that we don't face the same temptation the Corinthians did? Like, aren't you glad that we don't live in in a culture like theirs where people literally make a living entertainingly hawking their life philosophy to others as a means of social advancement? Shades, we put Corinth to shame with the amount of teachers and life hack preachers our culture supports. It's easy for us to look at Corinth and these traveling preachers and be like, that's strange, that's weird. It's not strange, it's not weird. We just don't call them traveling preachers and philosophers. We call them things like Social media influencers. Like, like, these are people who literally are able to entertain enough people, entertainingly hawk their prescription of the good life to attract enough traffic that they literally make a living at it through their YouTube or Instagram account or whatever. We call them things like social media influencers. We call them things like Celebrities, movie stars, music artists. Do people not love to talk about their attachment to movie stars, music artists, celebrities? Like, is this not why we, like, buy shirts with their name on it? Look at me. I am attached to Queen Bee. All right, for everybody who's not a millennial, that's Beyonce. She's a singer, but she's never been as good as when she was with Destiny's Child. I'm just saying Let's move on. But like we buy t-shirts and articles, all these kinds of things. We buy magazines. It's all about their life so that we can mimic their, their lives. We love to brag about our attachment because even our attachment to these people somehow feels like social advancement. We call them influencers, we call them celebrities, or we call them politicians. Politicians have really got this gospel thing down pat. They are really good at like, Everyone else has bad news, and their way is leading you to hell. I offer you salvation through me. Come right, or come left, or come center, whatever. They're all preaching their own version of of a gospel. We call them politicians, or business leaders, or authors, or comedians, or late-night TV hosts. It doesn't matter. They're all preaching different gospels. Guaranteed to make you feel empowered, to make you feel wise, to make you feel glorious like them. It's the Corinthian gospel. 
It's the world's gospel. Like you can take any version of the world's gospel out there, whatever trappings it has, however it's dressed up, whatever it looks like, it all boils down to the same thing. It's a gospel of power, wisdom, and yourself glorified. All of it. Shades, let me be clear alongside of Paul. That's not the Christian gospel. No, what we proclaim is not ourselves. What do we proclaim? Paul is glad that we asked. He answers, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, it's at this moment that I think we are all tempted to say amen. That's right, Paul. Tell them. Those dumb Corinthians. We, we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as we. We proclaim him. We don't follow all those worldly leaders and their false gospels. Amen, Paul. And, and it's great that that is our reaction and that's what we want to say. However, I have left out one vital piece of information about what Paul is saying right here in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul is not actually pushing back against the general culture of traveling teachers in Corinth. Now right here, he's pushing back against a specific group of teachers who have Christianized the culture's gospel of power, wisdom, and self-glorification. There were these teachers, between when he wrote First and Second Corinthians, there were these teachers that had invaded the church at Corinth, claiming to be Christian. Maybe they thought they were. But Paul lets us know real quick that their gospel was just like the world's gospel. For these teachers, Jesus was a means to power. Jesus was a means to wisdom. Jesus was a means to glory. It, if you just go back a little bit in the book, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul calls them peddlers of God's word. That, that word peddlers, the Greek word underneath it was a word commonly applied to merchants in the marketplace who would water down their goods to make them go further so they could turn a bigger profit. Paul's saying these are people who water down the Word of God to make it more palatable, more acceptable, to get a wider, to get a larger audience. They peddle this watered-down Word for their own benefit, their own power, their own glory, their own platform. Peddlers of God's Word. In chapter 5 and verse 12, he says that these are people who boast about the outward appearance but they don't look inward at what's in the, in the heart. They boast about their outward appearance because they had a good one. These people, they, they looked very much like the secular teachers in Corinth. They had a powerful presence. They were entertaining speakers. I mean, they, they could use some rhetoric and turn a phrase. They could gather a following. They could sell the books, sell out the conferences. They seemed so powerful, so wise, so glorious. And the Corinthian Christians were being tempted to attach themselves to these teachers. 
I mean, Paul, what's the big deal? These teachers, they still talk about Jesus, and they do it so much better than you, Paul. Paul will actually, in chapter 11 of this book, sarcastically call these leaders super apostles. Because, you know, Paul's just a regular apostle. Because these, these guys are so much greater than him. They're, they're super apostles. But, but he actually tells us in chapter 11 and verse 13 the reality of what they are. This is how he describes these super apostles. He says, they are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul's always a little light-handed when he rebukes people. Paul says they may look like super apostles to you, Corinth, but they are servants of Satan. They boast in their power, wisdom, and, and glory. And they love to point out that Paul doesn't have any of that. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, this is what they say about Paul. His bodily presence is weak. And his speech is of no account. Paul doesn't have a powerful presence. He doesn't speak to you with wise, witty words. Paul has no glory. How can he preach? Therefore, no powerful presence, no wise, witty words, no glory. So how can he preach to you a powerful, wise, glorious gospel when he's powerless, foolish, and inglorious? They point to the long list of Paul's sufferings. They go, I mean... Corinth, check out his rap sheet. This man is in and out of jail. He suffers all the time. I mean, would Jesus really let that happen to one of his true followers? Does that look like successful ministry to you? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't Jesus elevate a faithful follower of his? Wouldn't he give them greater and greater influence? That makes sense. That sounds like wisdom. And these super apostles Christianized the world's gospel of power, wisdom, and yourself glorified. And the Corinthians, the Corinthians were tempted to attach themselves to such teachers and preachers. They, they, they were tempted to boost their own Christian status. And I'm a super Christian, like they're super apostles, right? I'm a next level Christian. They were tempted to boost their own status by being able to point to the power, the wisdom, and the glory of the teacher that they followed. That had always been a problem in Corinth. Just go back and read 1 Corinthians 1. Even there, they were divided over which apostle they followed. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. And Paul's like, did any of us die for you? Were you baptized into, into our name? It's Christ separated. They, they tried to boost their own Christian social standing by attaching themselves to these teachers of power, wisdom, and glory. Shades, aren't you glad we don't do the same thing? Like, aren't you glad that our modern Christian culture has no super apostles in it? We aren't tempted to brag about what teacher we are attached to, whose church we attend, 
whose books we read? Like, aren't, aren't you glad that we have finally rid ourselves of being tempted by a Christianized version of the world's gospel of power, wisdom, and yourself glorified? Oh, shades. When we hear Paul's words, we proclaim, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. When we hear those words, we may be quick to say amen until we realize he's not pushing back against worldly leaders and their false gospels. No, he's pushing back against Christians like you and me when we follow super apostles. He wants Corinth to see your heart has been gripped by the world's gospel of power, wisdom, and yourself glorified. You've just put Christian language on it. Shades, I not only want us to develop a filter to be able to see that the world around us is preaching to us constantly. I think that we do a decent job of that. I think that we can decently say, hey, we do. We reject the world's false gospels. We embrace Christ. But how? It's easy to reject the wolf of false teaching when it comes to you as a wolf. But how about when it comes in the sheep's clothing? How about when it comes talking about Jesus? But it still appeals to the natural desires of our heart. It still tempts us with that which glorifies us. Power, wisdom, and self-glorification. We just put Christian language on it. Paul says, no, no Corinth, no shades. I want you to be able to combat that. Let me tell you how you're going to combat that by knowing the true gospel. Let me tell you what we really proclaim. We proclaim, not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Shades, that is line by line the exact opposite of the world's gospel of power, wisdom, and yourself glorified. It is the gospel of weakness, foolishness, and yourself denied. See, see that with me. One piece at a time. It's very clear. Line by line, Paul is refuting this. First, it's a gospel. The true gospel is a gospel of weakness. Paul says, we proclaim Jesus Christ. Jesus. We proclaim, you know, Jesus, that guy that was born in Bethlehem, came out of Nazareth, was crucified by the Romans. We preach Jesus Christ. Christ. He's saying we preach a crucified Christ. I know that's his emphasis because that's been his emphasis to Corinth all throughout their history of their relationship together. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, Paul says this, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When you hear Jesus Christ, I want you to hear crucified Christ. This is, this is what we proclaim. A Christ who has been crucified. The most shameful of executions, crucifixion, the most public display of powerlessness that exists. Yeah, that's the Jesus that we proclaim as Christ. Christ, that's a Jewish messianic title. It means anointed one or Messiah. The Jews were longing and looking for a Messiah. They were confident that he would come and they would know him because he would make himself known in power. They looked for a sign. 
the power of the Messiah. And Paul says, we proclaim a crucified Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says that's a stumbling block to the Jews because they were looking for a Christ who would come in power. And Christ came crucified to the world. That's not power. That's a gospel of weakness. The cross is a display of weakness. It's a gospel of weakness. Second, it's a gospel of foolishness. It's a gospel of foolishness because Paul doesn't stop with we proclaim Jesus Christ. He goes on to say we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's a Roman title. It comes from the Greco-Roman world. We proclaim Christ as Lord. It's, it's a title for a ruler. And Paul here is not using it to say that Jesus is just some ruler. No, he's saying he is the ruler. The divine Lord God over all. Paul proclaims that Jesus, the crucified Christ, is the risen and reigning Lord over all. That sounds crazy. It sounds foolish. In 1 Corinthians 2.23, that tells us that the gospel of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. It also tells us it's foolishness to the Greeks, to the Greco-Roman world. They hear you call a crucified man Lord over all. That's crazy. It's a gospel of foolishness, of weakness, of foolishness, and third, it's not a gospel of yourself glorified. It's a gospel of yourself denied. We know that because of the rest of what Paul says. Paul says, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, this isn't about our glory. This is about Jesus' glory. We proclaim ourselves as your servants. We're not proclaiming ourselves to you. No, we are serving you. We're servants. We're servants because we have been captured by Christ, taken captive by Christ. Paul paints a very clear picture of that earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And beginning in verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are a fragrance from death to death, to the other we are fragrance from life to life. Paul takes an image out of Greco-Roman life. When the Romans conquered somebody, they would have a parade. Military parades are still a thing, okay? And when the Romans conquered people, they would have a parade. And one of the main features of this parade was parading along people they had taken captive. And they would parade them along either to a life of servitude or to execution. Either way, it's a life of death. And as they would go on this triumphal procession, they had all sorts of incense that they would burn along the way and it would fill the streets with an aroma. To the Romans, it was an aroma of victory. To those who'd been conquered, it was an aroma of death itself. We're headed to our death and doom. Paul picks up that image and he says, That's us. Christ has conquered us taken us captive. And he leads us in triumphal procession before the world. We're his servants. He's Lord and he's leading us in triumphal procession. And we are giving off a fragrance, aroma, everywhere we go. It's the fragrance, it's the aroma of the gospel that we proclaim. 
And there are people that look at that gospel of Christ crucified and they say, weakness, foolishness, not glorious, that smells like death. But, Paul says, there are those who hear that gospel, look at that gospel, and behold the power, the wisdom, and the glory of God. And that gospel smells like life to them. This is what we're doing for you, Corinth. We are servants. We're giving off this aroma of, of the gospel. It smells very different than the aroma of the world. Do you smell life or death? Is it gripping your, your, your heart? We proclaim not ourselves. We're serving you by proclaiming Jesus and his glory. We do this for his sake. This is a gospel of weakness, foolishness, myself denied and Jesus glorified. This is the gospel that had gripped Paul's heart. That's exactly what he says in the next verse. Look at 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. He says, for God. In other words, you want to know why? You want to know why we're servants proclaiming the gospel to you, not proclaiming our... You want to know why? God's done something. For God did something. What did God do in Paul's life? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, the same God who created everything by his powerful word, he's created something new by his powerful word. He's shown a new light. What is it, Paul? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts, my heart, Paul says, he's shown in my heart, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says, God has shown a light into the darkness of my heart. A dark heart that once looked at the crucified Christ. Y'all know about my former manner of life, Paul will tell you. How I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy. I would look at the crucified Christ and I would say, weakness, foolishness, inglorious. God shone a light into that dark heart. And do you know what I saw? Power. Wisdom and glory, the glory of God. And do you know where I saw it? I saw it in the face of Jesus Christ. I've never seen anything more powerful than the crucified Christ, risen. He's so powerful, He's going to make all things new. I don't care how weak it looks to the world. I've never seen anything wiser there's no other way that people could be saved and reconciled to God. Every single person has a broken relationship with God because of our sin and rejection of Him. It's a price that we alone deserve to pay, and it's a price that God alone can pay. We need someone who is both fully man and fully God. There's only one, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who could alone pay our debt. I've never seen anything wiser than this. I don't care how foolish it looks to the rest of the world. I've never seen anything more glorious than this. The cross of Christ, full of the beautiful love of God poured out towards us, full of the beautiful salvation of God, full of giving me joy forever in, in Him. In the crucified and risen Christ, Paul is saying, we have beheld the power, the wisdom, and the glory. We've beheld the gospel of God. Let me read you the full verse that I've only quoted partially a couple of times. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 23 says, but we preach Christ crucified. Yeah, stumbling block to the Jews. Yes, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. And Christ, the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. It's a glorious gospel. And it's gripped our hearts. And Paul is saying to Corinth, we want you to see the same thing, Corinth. That's why we proclaim Christ. We're shining the same light. Hoping it's going to shine in your dark heart so you'll see the same thing. So that the Christ who looks weak and foolish and inglorious will actually be shown by God, revealed by God to be powerful, wise, and full of all glory. We want you to see the same thing. We want you to look at a weak, foolish, inglorious, crucified Christ and see power, wisdom, and glory. And Corinth, the only way that can happen is if we come to you in weakness and foolishness without glory. Do you see why that's the only way that can happen? Like Corinth, if I can talk for Paul, Corinth, if we, if we came to you any other way, you would be tempted to marvel at our power, at our wisdom, at our glory. But when we come to you, weak, unwise, in the eyes of the world, when we come to you suffering, when we come to you with crucified lives, then you can see God's resurrection power at work in us. When we come to you this week and we proclaim a gospel and it transforms everything, then there's only one thing that could be doing that, only one thing powerful enough to do that. It has to be the gospel because there's nothing in us. Shades, only a crucified life can display resurrection power. It's like, it's like when I got engaged to, to Holly. Like I didn't get a diamond-encrusted engagement box. I didn't want her focus to be the box. Maybe a plain, normal box. I don't even know what happened to it. Maybe there's she who's gone in like 0.2 seconds. Paul says, we want you to behold nothing but the power, the wisdom, and the glory of the gospel. So we come to you weak, foolish, and inglorious. That's precisely what he says in verse 7. Look at it. But we have this treasure. What treasure? The one he's just been talking about. The gospel we proclaim. God shining his light into dark hearts. We've got that. That treasure we have this treasure in jars of clay in order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. A jar of clay was a common daily use vessel. Nothing impressive about it at all like an engagement ring box. This is what Paul calls himself a jar of clay and he says God uses clay vessels like me to bring the gospel to you so that when it's power when it's wisdom when it's glory grips you you know it's not me it's God the most explicit place he says this is in first Corinthians chapter 2 listen this is how he pictures all of his ministry first Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 Paul says to the Corinthians when I came to you brothers I didn't come to proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified a foolish and glorious message 
And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is why I come to you weak, frail, in fear and much trembling. Shades, I know what Paul's talking about here. This is how I preach to you. In much fear and much trembling. You may be like Jonathan. You seem awfully authoritative and confident up there. You need to read my text message threads with John, Mark, and Brad on Saturday nights. Much fear and trembling. I want you to know that when in this moment something powerful happens, it's got nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with anybody in this place except God and the power of the gospel alone. This is how our God works to display his power, his wisdom, and his glory. He works through people who are weak, foolish, and inglorious, which means that there's hope that he can work through all of us. He's always done it this way. Read your Bible. In Genesis, God used a disgraced prisoner, Joseph, to save nations. God used a shepherd boy, David, to slay a giant. He used a peasant girl, Mary, to give birth to the Savior of the world. He's the God who uses a cross to display his ultimate power, wisdom, and glory. This is his message of power, wisdom, and glory. And his messengers match the message. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians about themselves and why God has saved them. This could be the words of God to us of why he has saved us, shades. 1 Corinthians 1.26 For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Oh, shades. Don't let your heart be gripped by the gospel of today's super apostles who attempt to tell you that you need power, wisdom, and glory to make an impact for the kingdom of God. Don't let your heart be gripped by the don't let your heart be gripped by the gospel of super apostles who say things like Christians must have political power in order to make an impact for the kingdom. So you Christian, you need to align yourself with whoever you have to, risk whatever reputation you need in order to avoid being weak in this world. That's the way to get powerful and get the gospel out powerfully. Don't don't let your heart be gripped by the gospel of super apostles who say things to you like, Christian, you cannot really embrace Scripture as the full authoritative word of God for today, especially on current issues like gender and sexuality. You'll look foolish. You'd be a fool in the eyes of the, the world. Shades, don't let your heart be gripped by the gospel of super apostles who say things to you like, 
you got to strive to be successful by worldly standards if you're going to have an influence. You've got to strive in your profession to get to the top if you want to have real influence for Jesus. You've got to strive to be the perfect Instagram parents. Or you've got to strive in order to have the perfect marriage so that people will be attracted to Jesus. You've got to have the most awesome single life where you never experience any loneliness or people won't believe that Christ is sufficient. You're going to make the gospel look inglorious. Shades. It is precisely in that which makes us look weak, foolish, and inglorious that the power, wisdom, and glory of the gospel can be displayed. It's right there. It is in our lack of worldly political power that the power of the gospel can be displayed. It's in our lack of worldly political power that we get to proclaim there is a kingdom coming straight out of the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 in which there will be a kingdom that comes that brings an end to every kingdom this world has ever set up. Right, left, center. I don't care what it is. It will, Daniel's vision says that it will break them to pieces and bring them to an end. Hebrews calls it a kingdom that is coming that cannot be shaken. It is in the midst of us not having worldly political power that we get to proclaim a greater power that's coming. It's, it's precisely in our foolishness of embracing all that Scripture has to teach, including everything that it has to teach us about gender and sexuality. It's, it's precisely in that that we get to proclaim good news to this world. Good news like you don't bear the burden of determining your own identity. You, you can't do that. It will be an endless, lifelong search that never satisfies, but there is good news that there is a God who has given you, bestowed upon you an identity greater than anyone that you could ever create for yourself. This is good news. To some, it will have the aroma of death, but when we proclaim that in weakness to some, it will have the aroma of life. Shades, it is, it is in the ingloriousness, the, the an imperfection of our own lives. It, it, it is in our marriage struggles, in our singleness struggles, in our parenting struggles. It's, it's in the thick of all of that that it becomes evident that we are being sustained by a power outside of ourselves. It's in the weak and foolish and glorious jars of clay lives that we live that the power of God can be put clearly on display as it sustains us and we declare it day after day. With the Apostle Paul, we say, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, for His glory, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is that the gospel that's gripped your heart? Is your life about some climb to the top? Or is it about a denial of self to promote the glory of God? Is this the gospel that's gripped us as shades in a world where the majority of churches believe that influence is found in getting bigger and more services and more campuses and being known and having a well-known preacher and pastor and, and a, who is a great author. Sorry about that. Y'all just don't have that. And you're not going to get it. But like in a world where that's success, 
are we going to look at ourselves, shades, through that lens? Or are we content to be a weak, foolish, and glorious little group of believers in West Homewood who faithfully live and die and in a hundred years are most likely forgotten? But that will be like a mustard seed of the kingdom that grows into a glorious tree. What gospel has gripped our heart? Not the gospel of the world's power, wisdom, and glory, but, but the gospel of the, the weak, the foolish, the inglorious gospel of Christ crucified. Has that gripped our heart? Do we treasure the gospel of Christ crucified? And do we treasure it in jars of clay? Is that the gospel you are receiving? Is that the gospel you are preaching? Everybody's preaching. What gospel? we proclaim. Amen.